0: Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. We we'll
1: turn this time now over to Brother Gary McBride. Well, wonderful to remember the Lord, isn't it? Foretaste of of heaven, what it'll be like in glory. You know, in a, a good novel, uh, a writer will introduce uh, themes and subjects and places to build some suspense. They don't wait to the last chapter to say. Uh, here's how it all came to to be. They want to draw you in, draw your attention, so there's allusions, there's little things that happen. It's true in Scripture. uh, Places and people, as they're introduced, uh, so often are introduced in a way that uh, gives us an indication of what's going to happen either in the place or the person. And instead of just suddenly... Uh, something happened. We see right at the introduction. So when we think of the life of Abraham, we see him in a tent, a stranger and a pilgrim. We see him wandering. And so we're not surprised uh, when we see his life unfold and the significance of that as a stranger and a pilgrim. We see Jacob, we see him starting by grasping his uh, brother's heel. And that uh, really gives indication of where his life is going. Interestingly enough, when you see uh, Saul, who became the king, you see him looking for two donkeys, and he couldn't, he couldn't keep track of two donkeys. So we shouldn't be surprised that he had trouble uh, later on in the uh, in the kingdom. Uh, and it's true with place names. First time we're introduced to Jerusalem uh, in Genesis 14, uh, we see a king and a priest, a king of righteousness and a prince, king of peace. And so we shouldn't be surprised that when the Bible ends, uh, Jerusalem is associated with one who is the king of peace and the king of righteousness. I want to think just for a few minutes about Bethlehem uh, and a few devotional thoughts about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we'll turn to the story of a baby born in Bethlehem. I'm sure you all know where that story is in Genesis 35. <laughs> <laughs> just see it if you're awake. Genesis 35. This is the first time Bethlehem is mentioned in Scripture, and a child is born in, in Bethlehem. And so in verse 16, Genesis 35, 16, "...then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. It came to pass while she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, "'Do not fear, you shall have this son also.'" And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a, a pillar in her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. And so here we have the first mention of Bethlehem. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we think of how Scripture introduces places and people that is the place where a child is, is born. In fact, it's in the midst of a chapter of death, and in, uh, in verse 8, uh, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. In uh, the last verse of the chapter, Isaac dies. Uh, giving birth, Rachel uh, dies, and so in the midst of death all around, here a child is born. And to his mother, uh, Benoni, the son of my sorrow, uh, to his father, Benjamin, the son of my right hand, the Old Testament, B-E-N, the prefix, means son of, and the New Testament, it's B-A-R, uh, Barnabas, the son of consolation. And so uh, in many languages that's common. Uh, in Great Britain, of course, uh, Mick and Mac and uh, O, as in O'Byrne, O'Brien, son of. And so here the son of. And often in other cultures, names have uh, sort of more significance or meaning than they do in our culture. Names come and go in our culture depending on what's, on what's popular. But in uh, many cultures, names have significance. And sometimes people, people are given names that not only just uh, dis, you know depict who they are, but describe what they are. And so here is this boy with two names, Benoni and Benjamin, first time Bethlehem is mentioned. And we shouldn't be surprised then in a sense that these are two very extreme opposite. When you think of the son of my sorrow and the son of my right hand, what his mother saw and experienced in giving birth and the joy that his father found in, in son number 12 being born into, into the family. And so two extremes. But we think of uh, this as a you know, prefiguring, a type or a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in light of what we thought of this morning. We shouldn't be surprised either. He was the man of sorrows, wasn't he? But he's also the Lord of glory. Uh, to Mary... The Lord Jesus, as Zechariah said, a sword or a spear shall pierce your own soul also. She would experience the sorrow, the suffering, staying at the cross, watching her son die. But to God the Father, of course, he is the son of his right hand, the one of his right hand. And so you see that as a theme that you can just think of uh, through Scripture. It would be a good mental exercise this week to think of, uh, the sorrows of the Lord Jesus uh, Christ. Uh, there's a verse in Lamentations 1, verse 12, though not speaking of Christ certainly reminds us, uh, where Jeremiah calls out to those that pass by to look and see if there's any sorrow like unto my sorrow. In the day in which the Lord has afflicted me, he sent fire into my bones. Is there any sorrow like his? We read from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the garden he said, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto, unto death. And so was there ever sorrow like his sorrow? He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But certainly depicted in Scripture as the son of his right hand. Psalm 80, uh, the word Benjamin is in there in the Hebrew. It's not in our text, but the one who is my equal, the one in my uh, right hand. And again, we read in Hebrews 1, Hebrews 8, Hebrews 12 of his exaltation, where to the right hand the throne on high. When Stephen was stoned, where did he see him? the right hand of the throne. And so here's one born in Bethlehem. He's a man of sorrows, but he's the coming Lord and King, sovereign of all, the one at the right hand. So that's the first time Genesis, uh, Bethlehem is mentioned, the house of bread. But if you go to the book of Ruth, now there are more than one Bethlehem in in Israel. There's more than one town uh, called Bethlehem. But uh, in Micah 5, this Bethlehem is designated for sure. But in Ruth chapter 2,
0: uh,
1: we, I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, know this story. There is a verse 1 there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. And so uh, here's a notable man in Bethlehem, uh, a man of great wealth. He uh, his, word, his name means in him his strength. Uh, we see later on in verse 4 he gives directions uh, to the reapers. He's the lord of the harvest. But he's also a kinsman redeemer. And so because of his relationship to uh, to Elimelech, uh, he has the right to, to redeem. He's not the closest relative, as we see in chapter 4, but he has the right to redeem. Uh, kinsman redeemer Uh, gave someone close to the family the right to redeem something that had been lost through bankruptcy. And so he had the right uh, to do that. There's three things that had to be true of a kinsman redeemer. He had to have uh, a relationship. Couldn't just be anybody. There had to be a relationship. He also had to have the the riches. He had to have the wherewithal to do it, to purchase. And then thirdly, he had to have the resolve. Uh, The first man had a relationship, and he had the wealth, he had the riches, but he didn't have the resolve. He said, I can't do it. It'll mar my inheritance. And so we see in in this man of Bethlehem, we see a savior, one who did what the law could not do. Uh, Ten men came to the gate, and uh, he said to the other man, do you want to redeem uh, this inheritance? And with the inheritance, you have to take Ruth as, as well. He said, no, I can't do that. The law condemned it. But a man of grace, a savior stands up, And uh, pays the price and buys her to himself. And so, uh, Bethlehem, the first time we see a son of sorrow, the son of the right hand. Second time it's mentioned, we see a a savior. And then, of course, the third time is in 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. It's not the third time Bethlehem is mentioned because uh, here. Uh, Samuel went to Bethlehem, but the story is uh, connected with the third time that Bethlehem is, is significant in Scripture. And so, of course, uh, Samuel goes to anoint one to be the king of of Israel. And after he works through the, uh, the seven sons, uh, Samuel uh, asked in verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? And he said, there's remains at the youngest, and there he is keeping uh, the sheep. Uh, verse 13, Samuel took a horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. You go down to verse 18. This is a servant of Saul reporting back, and one of the servants answered and said, look, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. And so here you have the anointed king coming out of Bethlehem, So the future sovereign. Uh, he's rejected. He doesn't reign perhaps uh, for 13 more years, but uh, here he is. he's the anointed one. He goes into battle in the next chapter, of course, and wins a great victory uh, that depicts in many ways what we read in, in Colossians chapter 2, making uh, triumphing over principalities and powers. And so uh, here Bethlehem's prominent because the sovereign comes from there so you put these three together and there's the progression of of the whole plan of salvation you have a man of sorrows who is the beloved son the son of the right hand you have a savior and you have a future sovereign coming from Bethlehem and then one final reference in Micah chapter 5 Micah chapter 5 somebody moved Micah on me right before, let me help you, it's before Nahum. (laughs) It's always nice when somebody's helpful, isn't it? (laughs) Micah chapter 5, and this designates which Bethlehem it is. Uh, There's a Bethlehem mentioned in the book of Jeremiah that's different than this Bethlehem. Here in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. And then if you go down to verse 4, And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And the first line of verse 5 belongs to verse 4, and this one will be peace. And so the one born in Bethlehem the eternal Son of God coming to earth. And so, uh, just like a good novel, there's Bethlehem introduced. A child is born in the midst of death all around. Here's one who's a man of sorrows, but is the Lord of glory. Uh, Ruth comes with nothing, uh, no no future. Uh, she comes to Bethlehem, but there's one there who is a kinsman redeemer, a savior for her, who brings her in, and in God's providence, comes into the line of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, Uh, We see in David, uh, one who is a shepherd, uh, despised. Uh, The word youngest there actually is a derogatory term in the Hebrew. uh, Despised by his own family, not even brought with the other seven brothers to consider for anointing. And there he is keeping the sheep, a shepherd, a good shepherd. Uh, He protected the sheep, but he's anointed as sovereign. And so it's a wonderful thing. And then as it all transpires uh, in perhaps... uh, Late uh, 6 A.D., perhaps uh, early into 5 A.D., Caesar Augustus gave a decree that all the world should be taxed, and in order to be taxed, you had to return to your ancestral home. And so in likely in 4 B.C., uh, Mary being expecting, her and Joseph traveled to where? Traveled to Bethlehem. How did Caesar Augustus know that it was time to to make that pronouncement. It was all within the plan and purposes of God. And, of course, the pregnancy came to full term as they arrived in Bethlehem, and there she gave birth to the one who's prefigured all through Scripture. So it's just some of these amazing things. I don't know if it's just the way my mind works at times, or doesn't work, some people would say, but uh, just to see some of these patterns in Scripture, just the the beauty of Scripture, the depth of Scripture, but also the hand of God. So there's some things you can just maybe think on this week and enjoy uh, during the week. really. So in other words, if they fall asleep, it's my fault. All right. You know, the definition of a preacher is somebody that talks in other people sleep. So, but it's also said that a role of a preacher is to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. So if you fall asleep, you know what people think about you. The story of our Bible is to Zechariah chapter 3, what Frankie read for us. We've been working through the book of Zechariah. And this morning we want to take two passages, one in chapter 3, one in chapter 6 and uh, four other passages that talk about the branch that was mentioned here. Uh, Next Sunday morning, we'll look at some of the Messianic references, other Messianic references in Zechariah. I think it's quoted 14 times in the New Testament, and so there's much of Christ uh, in this Old Testament book. And so, uh, looking at these verses that were read to us from verse uh, 6 to verse 10, If you're out on Wednesday night, the first five verses have to do with the cleansing of the high priest. Now remember, this is a vision. It's not reality. And so uh, in verse 1, you have Joshua the high priest clothed in filthy garments. That's not the reality, but it's what Zachariah saw in in his vision that was given to him. And in that vision, then, you have Satan standing there to resist, and you have the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, who says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, there's not a brand plucked from the the fire. And then uh, his garments of filth are removed, but the Lord says, see, I've removed your iniquity from you. And clothe him then with clean garments, put a clean turban on his head. So it's the restoration of the priesthood. The cleansing and setting aside or sanctification of the priesthood. In verse 6, we have a condition. Now, let me just sort of do a little rabbit trail here. God dealt uh, through history with his people under covenants. That is, he made promises. And so the word testament is really just the word covenant. You have an old covenant, you have a new covenant. And God made promises through these covenants. And some covenants were totally unconditional. So God said, here's what I'm I'm going to do. So if you were to read in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, God made promises to Abraham that were totally unconditional. They just just were made. Uh, so for instance, in Genesis 15, when that covenant is ratified, remember Abraham cuts these animals in two, as was the custom of that day when two parties uh, were in agreement. They'd walk between those carcasses as if to say, if I break my part of this covenant, may this happen to me. Well, Abraham went into a deep sleep, and that smoking lamp that represented the presence of God went down the middle to indicate that this was an unconditional promise. And so what God said to Abraham in Genesis 12 about his uh, seed and about blessing uh, him and his seed is unconditional. uh, Nothing uh, conditional about it. Now, some of the covenants are more conditional. Uh, The covenant with David has unconditional parts, but it has conditional parts. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God made that covenant with David, he talked about his throne and one who would occupy it forever, but he also talked about disciplining. Uh, And of course, not talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, but uh, if your son sin, he says, I'll discipline him. And so there is a condition attached. Israel was under not only what we would call the Abrahamic covenant, and the Davidic covenant, but the Palestinian uh, covenant as well. And it was conditional. It had to do with the land. It didn't have to do with them as God's people, but it had to do with the land. And It had conditions, and so there was blessings and there was curses associated with that covenant. If you do this, you'll dwell in the land. If you don't do these things or if you get involved in idolatry, I'll take you out of, out of the land. And so here in verse 6 is, is one of those uh, conditions to do with that covenant. Uh, The priest is restored uh, to his proper place in holiness. And he says, uh, here's what I want you to do. And then he talks about cleansing the land as well. So the priesthood and then uh, the land. And interwoven uh, with this, in this vision, is some explanation. And so he sees these things. We talked about some of it on Wednesday night. He he sees... uh, Uh, some signs, wondrous signs. And in chapter 4, he sees uh, seven lamps, and he sees uh, uh, olive uh, trees as well. And he asks, what are these about? Now, if you were to read in Revelation chapter 11, verse 4, the two witnesses that are in the tribulation period uh, are identified by these two symbols. But in this time, and in in a particular way, he's saying that Zerubbabel, who was the prince, And Joshua, who is the priest, are the two that are set as a sign uh, for the people, a prince and a priest as a sign. He talks about a stone with seven eyes. Uh, Again, in chapter 4, verse 10, uh, he talks, These seven rejoice to see. Revelation 5, you have the seven spirits of God which are sent into all uh, the earth. And so it seems to be a reference or an indication or allusion to the fact that God in his omniscience knows everything, and God is everywhere. Of course, he's omnipresent, but there is a sense in which he's depicted as uh, seeing things or doing things. Uh, We mentioned before in Genesis uh, chapter 11 when it says of Babel, the Tower of Babel, it says, let us go down and see. Why did God have to come down and see? Uh, Why would that have to happen? So is it imagery that we can understand, or is it this idea that, uh, God is searching uh, searching out these things. But within this, uh, he gives us uh, this wondrous sign, and he speaks of my servant, uh, the branch. And so uh, this introduces, in terms of what we're going to think of this morning, this uh, messianic title that's used six times, six different passages in the Old Testament, but there's some variations, as we'll see, in the way it's used and the way it's presented, but it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a messianic promise of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we'll see that it's to do with his future reign when he comes to earth uh, to set up his, his kingdom. But he says, Behold, I'm bringing forth my servant, the branch. One of the titles of the Lord Jesus Christ is the servant of the Lord, and that's a high a high calling. Uh, Behold, my servant. So in Isaiah 42, uh, God says, God the Father says, "Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my elect, and whom my soul delights. My servant, whom I uphold." And He tells us what the servant of the Lord does. Uh, again in uh, Isaiah 52, verse 13, uh, "My servant shall deal prudently." And He talks about the activities of the servant, and of course. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ was. I come to do thy will, O God. He was a perfect servant. We see that in uh, Philippians chapter 2, that uh, though being in the very form of God, he didn't think it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. The thought there is that in eternity, he had the full display of glory, and he was willing to lay that aside, to humble himself. And it says he came in the form of a servant. So he's in the form of God, he came in the form of a servant. The word form has to do with the essence, not the appearance. Uh, we might say someone's in fine form. I've golfed with Ross, and some people might say when he golfs he's in fine form. Others would tell the truth. But um, so, sorry.
0: <laughs> but
1: uh, <laughs> no, I'm not telling the score of the last game. It's on it's on tape. I can't tell you the score. <laughs> But uh, that's what form is. It's the, the expression, the essence of. So, being the very form of God, he was the very form of a servant. He, he didn't become something he wasn't. Uh, he came in fashion and likeness of a man. That means he took something on that wasn't true of him before. But he was in the form of God, he was in the form of a servant. And so, uh, God the Father talks of him here as my servant, uh, the branch. It's a wonderful. Uh, title, and accolade of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it looks forward, as I said, at the end of verse 9, to a day when he says, I will remove the iniquity of the, that land in one day. And that day, verse 10, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. And so there's a day coming when the land will be purified. The nation will be as well. Romans eleven twenty six speaks of a time when all Israel will be saved. Uh, God is going to deal with them once again. We'll see that time and time again under these references of the branch that God is going to deal with them. But he deals with the land as well. And so the iniquity of Joshua was removed. The iniquity of the land will be removed. The thought at the end of verse 10, under a vine and under a fig tree, uh, if you were in Israel in, in ancient times and you were sitting under a fig tree, people would uh, recognize that you're having your devotions, right? They're generally one-room houses, there wasn't a place to go and have your devotions. But if you had a fig tree, you went under your fig tree and people wouldn't bother you. You Figured you're there, figured you're there, uh, having your time of devotion. Uh, this is what I think is the background to the Lord's comments to Nathaniel. I remember Nathaniel came, said, can any good thing come from Nazareth? And the Lord says, before you were here, I saw you under a fig tree. And I think the conversation indicates what Nathaniel's devotion was about. The Lord said to him, Hereafter you'll see angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I think it's an indication that he was probably meditating on the ladder that Jacob saw uh, going up to heaven and the Son of God and that whole scene and picture. And I think that's why the Lord Jesus talks of the fig tree and then brings up that that topic. Uh, We sing that in one of our hymns. So it seems my Savior's cross to me a ladder up to heaven. And so. Uh, This speaks of a time when people can dwell peacefully and sit under their fig tree. And so it's a a millennial kingdom type of reference. And so he introduces my servant, the branch. But let's go to chapter 6 and verse 9. Chapter 6, verse 9. And uh, actually, we'll start at verse 11 because there's too many big names in verse 10. Take the silver and gold, make an elaborate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall build the temple of the Lord, he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule on his throne. He shall be a priest on his throne, and a council of peace shall be between them both. The elaborate crown shall be for a memorial in the temple of the Lord. And then all these names, verse 15, even those from afar shall come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. And this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. And so there's a, a near fulfillment. The temple was rebuilt. Uh, Zechariah is speaking just three and a half years before the temple is finished. And so it is going to be finished. But then he looks beyond that. And there's several things uh, here. One of the things we've been doing as we've looked through Zechariah is looking for the interpretation, the exposition. What did it mean to them? And then an application, the enjoyment of it. What, what does it mean to us? What can we think about? What can we enjoy out of the passage, even though it's not addressed to us? It's not, you know, We're not going to go build a temple and all that type of thing. So what can we learn from it just to enjoy the Lord and to see something of him? What happens here in verses 9 and 10 and 11 is that these men come with a gift. They've come from Babylon with a gift to use in the temple uh, for the rebuilding of the temple. So they're bringing some precious stones, precious things to be used in the rebuilding of the temple. But the Lord says instead of using it for that, uh, use it to make a crown. He says later on that this crown is a, a memorial crown. It's, it's there as an emblem, a symbol of something. So they've come with this purpose, but God says, no, I want it to be used for this. And then he says in verse 12, behold the man whose name is the branch. Now, what a what a wonderful thought. Again, you know, we mentioned behold my servant. But here, behold the man. Now, this phrase is found twice in Scripture. It's a very sort of famous phrase phrase in Latin, "Ecce homo, uh, behold the man. It's found in John chapter 19, verse 5. And there's a tremendous contrast. And this is, again, something you can enjoy during the week. In John 19, verse 5, Pilate brings out the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I find no fault in him. But he says, behold the man. And you read the things that went before that. He was beaten. He was spit upon. Uh, The beard plucked from his face, he was slapped, he was beaten on his back. All those things he came out. In the words of of Hebrews, or of Isaiah 52, uh, his visage was so marred more than any man. He hardly looked uh, human when they were finished with him. And Pilate, who represents human government, presents this one. Behold the man, look at him. Uh, I find no fault in him. And they say, we don't want this man to reign over us. And there, that then is the historical use of that word, behold the man. We talked earlier about the man of sorrows, the son of, son of my sorrow. Well, there he was, the man of sorrows, presented to the world, nothing lovely about him. Uh, there was no beauty in him that we should desire him. As they, as they saw him there, beaten and despised and rejected, Behold the man. Pilate he, he spoke those words to a crowd of how many? A couple hundred, maybe a thousand. Who knows how many heard those words. But here in Zechariah chapter 6, these words are going to be heard by everyone. This is God the Father speaking. And it's not history, it's prophecy. And he's going to say, Behold the man. As he introduces, not the man of sorrows, but the Lord of glory. Right? We sometimes sing, Look, you saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now. From the fight return victorious. Every knee to him shall bow. And so here he is, Behold the man. And that's, a, again, just focus on that little phrase for a moment, Behold, that word. Uh, God the Father delights in us being, seeing his Son and exalting his Son. So behold my servant, behold the man. In the New Testament, uh, John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God, look at him, the Lamb of God. Uh, in a devotional way, it says, you know, and seeing Jesus as he walked. Well, that was just literally saw him coming. But there is a thought, just seeing his life, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Or you go to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, wherefore, <clears throat> holy brethren, partakers of the holy calling, consider him the apostle and high priest of your confession. Consider him, think about him. Or Hebrews 12 verse three, for consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Consider him, think about him. That's how people get saved, isn't it? They consider him. It's amazing. We read of conversions in the Muslim world, in Iran and in Afghanistan and these countries and what do they see? They, they see the Lord Jesus Christ. They see the beauty and glories of Christ. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says he's called us by his own glory and virtue. And so as we consider him, we're attracted to him. So here, God the Father says, behold the man. And so down through the ages rings Pilate's words, behold the man, the man of sorrows. But here he's presented, behold the man, the Lord of glory, whose name is the branch And so here he is again. And what will he do? He shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. Now, it's interesting through Scripture, there are a number of temples. If you count the tabernacle as the dwelling place of God, and then there was Solomon's temple. What they were building here at this time became what's known as Herod's temple. But there's a temple today, isn't it? We are the temple of God. The church, universal, the local church. and uh, 1 Corinthians 3.17, he refers to a local assembly as the temple of God. If anyone destroys my holy temple, I will destroy him. And then, of course, individually, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, God's dwelling place, a temple. In the tribulation period, there will be a temple that's defiled right? The abomination that makes desolate, that will happen then. I think that during the tribulation period, there really will just be a tabernacle erected. I mentioned a place in Jerusalem called the Temple Institutes, and they have everything ready that they could start worship tomorrow, except for the Ark of the Covenant. They believe that somehow that will be found, but they have all the vestments, they have the altar, they have Everything you could think of, all the pans, the pots, absolutely everything. You wander through, uh, you see a visual demonstration. They have everything uh, needed. And so they could erect a tabernacle tomorrow and start worship. When you're on the Temple Mount, you know, you see the picture of the, the dome of the rock, and then the mosque is off to the other side. But there are 40 acres up there. There's a lot of land beyond that. The mosque and the dome are uh, right at the the entrance to the the Temple Mount. But beyond that, there's all sorts of, of room, uh, you know, the inside of the Eastern Gate right across. Uh, there is a little wee sort of gazebo or dome, very small, it's called the Dome of Spirits. And many people think that's the place where the Temple will actually go because when you stand on the Mount of Olives and look across through the Eastern Gate and then the other side is the Dung Gate it lines up uh, with that, so there are scholars who who think that that could be the place, so nothing would have to happen to that dome or that mosque that are there. Uh, they could uh, erect a tabernacle there and start worship right away. but there'll be another temple, there will be a millennial temple, one that wasn 't defiled, and here it says that he will build that temple, and so when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom on earth, one of the things he will do is build his temple. And we read in the book of Revelation, when we get to heaven, there's no temple there. Why? He is the temple, right? He takes the place of all that is represented by the temple, the very dwelling of God. And so if you work that through, I think there are seven temples, he being the seventh, uh, through scripture, a perfect one at the end of that line. But not only Will he build the temple? The phrase in the middle of verse 13 is such a precious phrase for us. He will bear the glory. A wonderful thought. The NIV says he'll be clothed with majesty. So think of John 19.5, behold the man, the man of sorrows. But here he is, behold the man, and he'll be clothed in majesty. He'll bear uh, the glory. There's been a constant battle through the ages for glory. That's what Satan wants, the five I wills that he proclaims in Isaiah 14, I will be like the Most High God. He wants that glory. But ultimately, all the glory will go to God. And the Lord Jesus Christ will receive the glory. Uh, It's interesting, again, in John's Gospel, there are perhaps seven aspects of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. As you read through John, you can see seven aspects. Uh, distinct and different aspects of his of his glory. But he will be clothed in majesty, no longer the man of sorrow. So the next time the world sees him, they won't see him beaten and marred, not looking like a man. They will see the Lord of glory, clothed in majesty. What a wonderful sight. And you know, we'll be there with him. It's a wonderful thing. We'll be there with him. Now, it goes on to say that he's going to sit on his throne and be a priest on his throne. Now, in the Old Testament, priests didn't rule. But there is an exception, of course. Melchizedek in Genesis 14, king of righteousness, king of peace, the, uh, the priest of the Most High God, both king and priest. He comes from Jerusalem, and he meets Abraham. And so, at the end of time, there's going to be a priest who can sit on the throne I think that at the end of this verse, the council of peace shall be between them both, is between the office of prince or king and priest, combined in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will rule and reign. He's a priest now. He's our great high priest. I think through eternity he will still be seen as our great high priest. The crown then is a memorial. It anticipates. We had a memorial feast this morning. We remembered him, but it's till he come. It's a memorial. It looks back, but it anticipates the coming of Christ. So this crown had that in mind, that uh, he is coming again. So wonderful thoughts when you think of him as the branch. Behold the man, the man of sorrows. Behold the man, the Lord of glory, clothed in majesty. When he was presented uh, by Pilate, he had a royal robe of mockery, a purple robe of mockery. When he comes back again, he's clothed with majesty. What a wonderful thought. Let's briefly look at four other references. One's in Isaiah chapter 4. So there's two references in Isaiah, two in Jeremiah, and then two in Zechariah, all about the branch. So six references altogether. And if you pay attention to what he says about the, the branch, we will see that that is significant as well. Uh, the descriptive word or words he uses of the branch. And so here is just a brief reference in Isaiah four, verse two. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be glory beautiful and glorious, the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. And so again, it again anticipates a future day if you look down to verse five then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and a shining of a flame, flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a covering and there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat, for a place of refuge and a shelter from storm and rain. What a wonderful thought. Again, it's anticipating a future day, but in a devotional way, we look at some of these things and we think, well, that's true of us and of what we enjoy, a shelter in the time of storm. He certainly is that to us, isn't he? Does Jesus care? Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares for me. And so it looks to that day when uh, the Lord will deal with not only the people of Israel, but the land of Israel and Jerusalem again will be established as the place of his rule and reign. And the branch of the Lord, he says in verse 2, will be beautiful and glorious. And so anticipating that day. Then Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So here again you have this idea of of a branch. Now, There are uh, words in our text that are not always uh, visible or, uh, you know, we're aware of uh, due to the translation. Uh, Phil shared one this morning from uh, Psalm 22, verse 6, the worm, Uh, tola, the Hebrew word for scarlet. And so, though your sins be like crimson, the same same word uh, is used. The worm that was crushed to produce a crimson garment. The Lord Jesus Christ was crushed to produce a garment uh, for us. And so uh, there are what I would call untranslatable riches in the scriptures, things that we are not aware of or see. And so the word branch here is different than the five other references or uses of that word. Here it is a, is a word netzer, and it's a, it's a different word than the other five. But it's the root word of the word Nazareth uh, that's used here. Now, that's significant because the last verse of Matthew chapter 2 says of the Lord Jesus that he would be called a Nazarene that the scriptures might be fulfilled. There's nowhere in the Old Testament that talks about the Messiah in terms of Nazareth, in terms of Bethlehem for sure, in terms of Jerusalem for sure, but not a single reference to do with Nazareth. Uh, And yet here is this root word here. Uh, If you were in Nazareth, there's a Bible chapel, an assembly, and the Emmaus work in a building, and right beside it is called uh, Nazareth Village. It's a 2,000-year-old replica. Uh, You walk through it, and you see the wine press. You see them spinning uh, yarn and building things as they would have two thousand years ago, and I asked there about this this verse. I asked our Hebrew guide in Nazareth village, and he said yes that 's the root word to the word nazareth, and that 's thus the fulfillment of as the scriptures say, as the prophets predicted, he would be called a Nazarene. Now some people confuse the word Nazarite with Nazarene Nazarite was a vow you took. Uh, You might take a vow to say, I'm not going to do any of these things. I'm going to be separated unto the Lord, to the Lord's service. Uh, In our terms, you might say, I'm going on a mission trip. I'm going to uh, save my money. I'm not going to spend. I'm not going to do these things so that I can do this. I'm going to set apart these things and be disciplined so that I can serve the Lord. Now, in another Nazarite vow, of course, there was some signs that went with it. The abstinence from any Uh, fruit of the vine and the long hair uh, for a male that went with it to to indicate you've set yourself aside to do uh, the Lord's service. Uh, Samson, of course, was a Nazarite. John the Baptist was a Nazarite. He was distinct and different. The Lord Jesus Christ was not a Nazarite in that sense. He was in the spiritual application of it because his life was set apart uh, to do the service, the will of his Father in heaven. But he was a Nazarene uh, from Nazareth. And, of course, the reference we have, as I mentioned, in John chapter 1, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Nazareth was despised because there was a Roman garrison up there, there were Greek traders up there, as in people that did commerce, not traitors, but traders. Uh, in Nazareth, and so it was despised by the ruling class down in Judah. So they looked north to Galilee, and they thought of Nazareth. They thought, oh, there's nothing there. Uh, Remember later, it was said, uh, look and see, did any prophet ever come from Galilee? Well, one had. Jonah, of course, came from the north. But their thought was, there's no way the Messiah could be there. And again, in in the providence and sovereignty of God, of course, they were in Bethlehem but they had to go to Egypt, and coming back from Egypt, they end up in Nazareth. And so it's quite likely, quite possible, that this then is the root of that, that he, the branch, is a Nazarene. And so the other five uses of the word branch are different than this. This is distinct uh, in that way. In verse 2, we've talked about the seven spirits of God, the seven eyes. Uh, There's a sevenfold description in verse 2 of the spirit of uh, Of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and then there's six words, other words, so the spirit of the Lord, and then wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. so a sevenfold uh, description just for uh, just for again devotional thought here 's something to consider uh, three times in isaiah there 's talk of an anointing of the spirit being on the Lord Jesus Christ in isaiah forty two Uh, God the Father says, I've put my spirit upon him. In Isaiah 61, the Lord Jesus himself says, he has anointed me to preach good tidings. He has anointed me. And so the Lord Jesus is speaking. In Isaiah 42, it's the Father who is speaking. Here in Isaiah 11, we might say it's the spirit of God that's addressing the issue. And so three anointings. Uh, You would see in them here, he's talking about his rule and reign talking about him as a king. In Isaiah 61, it's the Lord Jesus saying, he is anointed to me to proclaim good tidings. He's a prophet. And in Isaiah 42, the occupation, what he does is like a priestly ministry, setting the captive free. And so he's anointed as king, as priest, as prophet. All that's fulfilled, of course, at his baptism, where he is anointed into messianic office. And so... Some wonderful thoughts, again, a progression of thoughts. So you can think about uh, that uh, this week. And so this rod comes out of there. Now, one of the things I should mention, too, is in these chapters in Isaiah, there's condemnation of the nations. And Syria, in particular, is presented as a, as a cedar tree. And when you cut a cedar tree, of course, it rots. The stump rots. There's nothing left. One of the great miracles of history, and again, this is something you can look up or study, the book of Nahum talks about the destruction of the Assyrians of Nineveh. The Assyrian empire and nation disappeared in just one and a half generations. I mean, it's it's remarkable. The city of Nineveh disappeared from from history, very very quickly. I mean, against all odds, other cities, you know, just de- declined, decayed, but Nineveh and the Assyrian empire just disappeared totally. One of the things the Assyrians did was then they captured a nation like the north of Israel they took the people right away they didn't leave anybody they moved other people in that's where the Samaritans came from but when it was Assyria's turn God said you're gone so they're like a cedar stump they disappear but Israel's like a myrtle tree and out of that stump will come a root a branch and of course speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so though it was cut down, uh, yet he came out of that. Uh, two other references, one in Jeremiah 23. So these you can remember, Isaiah 4, Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 33, Zechariah 3, and Zechariah 6. We've all got that now. You can remember that for at least how long? Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Let's, uh, for connection, read from verse 3. But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I've driven them. I'll bring them back to their folds. They shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell safely. And this is the name by which you will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. They shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country, and from all the countries where I have driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. A wonderful prophecy of Israel's future, God's care uh, for them. And so they're going to be regathered. Uh, the Jews in, in uh, 70, and partially in 70, and then in 132 AD, were dispersed from the land. After the rebellion of 132, uh, under a man by the name of bar kappa the Romans changed the name of the land to Palestine, named after Israel's ancient enemies, the Philistines. So that's where they got the name. They, they eradicated everything. They took the people off into slavery. There were very few Jews left in Palestine at that time. And of course, they were dispersed around the world. One of the great miracles of history is that the Jewish people are still here. They have their language and religion and identity. And that's only, again, the sovereign hand of God. Through the ages, they were put into ghettos all through Europe. Uh, the ghettos didn't increase in size, but they increased in population. But in those ghettos, they, they kept their uh, language, they kept their religion, they kept their identity, even though they were persecuted and killed down through uh, the years. The, they've been dispersed, but they will be regathered. I mentioned the other day, there are perhaps just over six million Jews in Israel. There are another seven to eight million Jews spread around the world. And so there will be a regathering. Jews are coming to Israel or going to Israel in record numbers right now because of the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe and partially in the U.S. as well. But uh, God is going to regather his, his people. And so this speaks of a future day. And he says in that day that uh, he's going to raise to David a branch of righteousness. Now again, here's a, a wonderful thought. If you look back at chapter 22, Jeremiah 22, uh, verses 24 to 30, we won't read them, but it's a it's a curse and condemnation against the last king of David's line, Jehoiakim, sometimes called Jeconiah. That Jehoiakim is uh, is cursed, and God says, "That's it. That's the end of the line, the line of David." But here in chapter 23, he says. Uh, A branch to David. And so uh, what's the answer? Well, the answer is a miracle, isn't it? That the Lord Jesus Christ should be Joseph's son by adoption, we might say, but Mary's son through natural birth. If you look at the two lines, uh, in Matthew, it comes from David to Solomon, down to Joseph. In Luke chapter 3, it comes from David to another son, Nathan, and down to Mary. And so the Lord Jesus could literally be the son of David, but have the right to rule and reign on the throne. And so the curse on Keniah is no hindrance to the plan and purposes of God. He was the last one that line to sit on the throne. But there's another one coming who is a son of David. But he's called the Lord our righteousness. What a wonderful title. This is a compound name of God again, we don't see these so readily in our translation. Jehovah Sidkinu. You might recognize that name from Robert Murray McShane's uh, hymn, uh, you know, friend-spoken rapture of Christ on the tree, uh, and he goes on to say, but Jehovah Sidkinu is nothing to me. Wonderful hymn, the Lord our righteousness. There are other compound names that we don't, aren't visible. Uh, Jehovah Ra, Psalm 23, the Lord my shepherd, compound name, the Lord. The last word of Ezekiel 48, Jehovah is there, the Lord is there, Jehovah Shammah, compound name of God. So you have at least seven, perhaps eight uh, compound names of the Lord. The Lord our banner, the Lord who heals, uh, and so on, are compound names. And so here, this one who's coming, who's going to come in David's line, is the Lord our righteousness. And then finally, in Jeremiah 33. Again, he's talking about Israel restored in a future day. Uh, If if, uh, we just look at, say, verse 14... Jeremiah thirty three fourteen. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, I will perform that good thing that I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He will execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell safely, and this is the name by which she will be called. So this is the city now, will be called the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah said, can you? And so the city will be holy. He goes on in verse 17, for he says, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. If you were to read on in this chapter, he talks about how unbreakable his covenant with Israel is. Uh, So for instance, uh, verse 25, thus says the Lord, if my covenant is not with day and night, and if I've not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then I will cast away the descendants of of Jacob and David, my servant and so on. If I haven't set the stars and the moon and the sun in his course, if I haven't done that, then you can say, I'm not going to do this. But he says, uh, that's how unbreakable this covenant is. And so in those days, he's going to cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness, and it talks of his rule and reign. And in his day, he'll execute judgment and justice in the earth. And so wonderful titles of the Lord Jesus uh, Christ and of who he is. Now, if you sort of read carefully, you would see that in those six references, there are four descriptive titles or words used uh, of, the, of the branch. And so in, in Isaiah uh, chapter uh, 4, he was the branch of the Lord. In Jeremiah, he's a branch of righteousness. In Zechariah 6, he's the man whose name is the branch. And in Zechariah 3, he's my servant, the branch. And so uh, those should bring to mind something when we think of the Gospels, because that's how the Lord Jesus is presented. He's the king, the one who will rule. That's what Matthew says. Mark says, he's the perfect servant, my servant, the branch. Luke says... You want to see a perfect man? Here's the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold the man whose name is the branch. But then he's also the branch of the Lord, the branch of righteousness. John presents him in that way. And so it's just a wonderful sort of kaleidoscope, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ in all those aspects of his person. And so we think of him as the branch. What a wonderful thought. One day we'll be there with him so don't get bent out of shape by what's happening in the world today you know how the story ends you know what will happen when you get there let's take time if Christine will play for us to play sing number 525 a couple of verses of 525 (coughs) so the interpretation of what we looked at belongs to Israel but devotionally and by application we can enjoy these things as well. And so let's sing maybe verses 1, 2, and 4. 1, 2, and 4 of 5, 2, 5. 525.
0: 525. Thank you. When my life work is ended. The swelling tide and a bright and glorious morning I shall see. I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side, and his smile will be the first to welcome me. I I shall know him, I shall know him, and redeemed by his side I shall stay. shall know him by the print of the nails in his hand oh the soul thrilling rapture when i view his blessed face and the luster of his kindly beaming How my full heart will praise him for his mercy love and grace that prepare for, for me a mansion in the sky I shall know him I shall know him and redeemed by his side I shall stand I shall know him I shall know him by the prince of the nails in his hand verse 4 through the gates to the city In a robe of spotless white He will lead me Ne'er no tears will ever fall In the glad song of ages I to mingle with delight But I long to meet my Savior First of all I shall know, I shall know Him I shall hold Him And redeem Him By his side I shall stand. I shall know him. I shall know him. By the print of the nails in his hand. Father,
1: we thank you for that prospect that one day we will see him. We think of all these predictions, these prophecies of the branch, and what a future for Israel. But we thank you, Father, that we will be there with him when he appears. Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and the fact that he will be clothed in majesty, that he will bear the glory. And Father, our desire is to give him glory, even today, by the lives we live. And so, Father, help us not only to understand these truths, but to appreciate them, to enjoy them, and to uh, devotionally feed on these thoughts in the coming days. We pray as we commit ourselves to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.